Hi, and welcome to Proof Sidebar. New episodes of Proof covering the cases of Lee Clark and Kane Story are released every Monday. But sometimes on Thursdays, you'll see mini episodes like this one, Sidebar Episodes. It's a chance for us to answer listener questions about the case, uh, talk about things going on behind the scenes, and other true crime topics. And for this very first Sidebar Episode of Proof, I'm here with Jacinda Davis and Kevin Fitzpatrick. To start things off, Jacinda, tell us why you suggested the name Sidebar for these episodes. The sidebar is my favorite part of court trials. It's when the judge invites counsel to come up to a special area, I think usually around where the judge sits, and it's out of earshot of the jury. No one in the room can hear what they're talking about, and it's off the record, Um, but it's often transcribed, and it's, to me, the best part of a court case. It's where the lawyers kind of fight it out and you hear things that the jury doesn't hear and you wonder why the jury's not hearing it. And um, it's sort of like a more candid version of of what's happening in the courtroom. And I thought that'd be a good name for for these episodes. It's kind of the behind the scenes negotiations that go on in a courtroom. And because they're often discussing whether or not the jury can hear something, um, it's often where the interesting but sometimes erroneous um, stuff comes up. Um, And it's also, like Jacinda said, where the judge and the attorneys get more candid. They often speak a little more freely. So in that sense, sidebar, our bonus episodes are like a sidebar because it's where we can answer questions, um, talk about things that maybe weren't presented at trial or new things that we uncover, or just be a little more candid about the conversation um, surrounding this case and other cases we're covering. And while out investigating cases, Jacinda and I spent a lot of time driving around together, um, arguing over true crime cases. So these sidebar episodes are a chance for us to continue doing that while we're in the middle of a season. Exactly. And in future sidebar episodes, you'll hear from guests and we'll talk about uh, the cases we're covering and other true crime topics. But for this very first sidebar, we thought we'd talk a bit more about who we are and how this show came to be. So to start us off, Kevin. I'm Kevin Fitzpatrick, and I am the president of Red Marble Media, and we make a lot of shows for investigation discovery at the moment, Um, most notably Evil Lives Here, which is a POV interview show. It is a a show where one person tells the story about what it's like to find out that they're living with a killer. And, you know, the title aside, it is not a salacious show it is a very intimate show they are personal stories and um, over the last several years Jacinda and I and the team have been involved in conducting more than 100 of these interviews and I think that they're really moving moving stories and we also did a show called Killer in Question a series that Jacinda and I produced which were, were all stories about looking at whether there were different points of view as to whether someone was guilty or innocent and wondering if people got it right that's sort of how we came across paths with you, with you. Jacinda convinced me that we should do the tightest story with Undisclosed. And um, I really enjoyed working with you on Undisclosed. And I thought you and Jacinda were a great team. And so when the opportunity came up to do another podcast together, I was really excited by that concept. And this story really caught my attention and I was really excited by the story. And so I was, 
I was sort of all in for telling this very unique story and for coming along to to help you two tell a a story together again. And Jacinda, tell us a bit more about your background. My background, I've been working in TV for longer than I care to mention. I started out working in crime TV and then I kind of got away from it for a while and I've done military docs and history docs, lifestyle docs, a couple live shows actually, and then came back to true crime maybe six or seven years ago. And I really, really enjoy true crime. I I like the stories. I like the investigative aspect, but I, I also like talking to everyone involved in the crime from the detectives to the victims' families to um, the perpetrator's family and and hearing their stories. Um, It's not really crime for crime's sake. You know, for me, I've always been interested in the psychology of of what motivates people. And I think that's why I find crime so interesting. One of the interesting things um, I think we can point out for you and I, Jacinda, is that you know, technically we're, we're making a lot of true crime shows, but I think you and I have always looked at them as sort of stories of humanity. There are stories of people living through an extraordinary event, and that's very much how we, how we approach them. I don't think there's, there's nothing salacious in, in how we approach any of that. And we've always found that you learn a lot about a human being through sitting down and talking to them about a crime that they were involved in in some way. Yeah, I I agree with that completely. And Jacinda, you started out in kind of the OG of true crime shows. (laughs) That's right. I uh, started out on uh, working on America's Most Wanted. It was actually, they had a syndicated daily show called Final Justice. And they also had an international version called Manhunter. And and I worked on all three shows. And, you know, people always ask, like, do you remember you know, what, what's the first case or whatever. And I do the very first case I ever worked on was a kidnapping story, Johnny Gosh, and it's stuck with me all these years and he's never been found. And I often think about him and where he is and and how his mom is. And um, so, yeah, these stories, they, they become part of, of your psyche. And uh, as for me, I am an attorney by background. I started off doing civil litigation um, here in D.C. and moved on to criminal appeals and white-collar defense. And then, kind of by accident, I ended up being a podcaster. In 2014, when Serial came out, I started writing about the Anand Syed case on my blog. And through that, ended up meeting two other attorneys, Colin Miller and Rabia Chowdhury, and we ended up starting our own podcast together um, about the case. And that evolved into Undisclosed and spent the next almost seven years um, podcasting about wrongful conviction cases around the United States. And I guess two years ago now, Jacinda, three years? Yeah, two or three. Like slightly pre-pandemic, um, I met Jacinda. And we started talking about true crime and realized we had lots to talk about and ended up um, working on the same case um, like Kevin mentioned, they were doing a show called Killer in Question and covering the case of Jeff Titus from Kalamazoo, Michigan, which we ended up covering on um, in season five of Undisclosed. And in 2020, in the middle of the pandemic, Jason and I ended up driving around Kalamazoo together, um, knocking on doors and talking to all kinds of amazing people and going to the, the Thunderhog Saloon, um, which one day, Jacinda, we shall return. We will return. 
yes, it'll be a great day. I feel like it's coming up. I feel like there'll be some news about, well, I don't. Don't jinx it. <laughs> but we will be back to the Thunderhog. And if that happens, we'll do a live show from the Thunderhog. <laughs> that would be amazing. But while working kind of side by side on the Jeff Titus case, um, at some point I mentioned to Kevin and Jacinda this case from Floyd County that I'd heard about and always thought it was worth a deeper investigation. And that's how the three of us ended up driving around Rome, Georgia together. Yeah, we ended up spending a lot of time in, in Rome, which is a place you already knew quite well, right, Susan? Yes. My my mother is from Rome, actually. Um, I spent a lot of time there growing up, um, but I've never lived in Rome, although I've now come back uh, for three different cases I've worked on for Undisclosed and now for Proof. So how, you know, a lot of people were asking, like, how did we find this case, the Brian Bowling case? And um, you mentioned it, we mentioned on episode one that it was through Joey Watkins, which was a case you covered on Disclosed, right? Yeah, Joey was our season two case. And at some point, several years ago now, um, he mentioned this case, um, the Brian Bowling case. He did not know Kane or Lee when they were um, out. Uh, Joey's a couple years younger than they are. Um, and he was convicted a few years later, but they spent a lot of time together in prison. And, and Joey mentioned to me that he's like, yeah, there's another messed up case from Rome. This guy I know named Lee Clark, you should talk to him. So that's how I first met Lee. I was, thought this case, the Brian Bowling case was interesting because we have someone who's in the room when Brian was shot. So we have someone who has all the answers. Um, so on the surface, it feels like it should be a very straightforward case, but it's very, very complicated and there's so many layers to it. So yeah, it caught my attention right away. Jacinda, you first told me about the story after Susan had, had brought it to you. And I, I felt the same way. I thought it was an incredibly unique story because nobody knows what happened inside that room except Kane. And this story sort of changed the lives of so many people and there's still such debate about what actually happened that night. Was it an accident? Was it a murder? Was it a murder conspiracy? That it just, it's, it's fascinating. And there's still a lot at stake with this story. Um, so while working on this case, we spent quite a lot of time in Rome, Georgia. Um, it's about an hour and a bit north of Atlanta. Um, but it's kind of off the beaten path. It's not on a major highway. So it's a little bit secluded in a way. Um, I know that even among other small towns in Northwest Georgia, Rome has a reputation of being, as being kind of a weird place. Um, but it, it's a lovely town. Like it's, it's got a, when you go there, they've done a great job of keeping their downtown um, still vibrant, um, still busy. It has a cute little downtown area. Um, has a major schnauzer convention annually, which <laughs> made it difficult to get uh, hotels when we went, went down for one trip. <laughs> yeah, just schnauzer right. fest. I forgot about that. Yeah, when we were when we were down there, I guess the second time, you know, Jacinda was going to try and buy this building. Like she wanted, there was an auction for some building on Main Street, and I was like, I think the rest of us are getting on the plane tomorrow. But you know, you can hang around and do the auction if you want. But, yeah. I I really like Rome a lot. It it is a very unique place. It's like no other place I've been to. It almost feels frozen in time. You know, like you were saying, Susan, there aren't any like major highways that go through Rome, you, you only go there if you're going there for a reason. You live there, 
maybe you're going for schnauzer fest, but um, it's not like you pull off to, to get gas as you're driving through, right? So, um, and the people, everyone we, we've met is really, really nice and welcoming. And um, yeah, I, I like Rome. <laughs> but no one there knows how to uh, make a Manhattan. No one knows how to make a Manhattan, that, that's true. Or, you know, how to not lose records, so. Yeah, that's two skills that Boyd County is totally devoid of. On proof, you hear from all three of us, Kevin, Jacinda, and I, as we're driving around Floyd County. Um, but you also hear from a fourth person sometimes, and that is Dan Whitrock, or as he's now known, Dan the Cameraman, who joined us on several of our trips. And so, when we had you and Dan down there in our, our, uh, our Scooby gang vehicle driving around, it was interesting to me to, to hear everyone's point of view after an interview we we talked to someone we'd be driving to the next witness and to hear what they'd taken away from the last witness um often differed in ways i hadn't expected and there were a number of times where i came away totally missing something that would later become you know an important piece of the story um that someone else in the car had noticed right away yeah, yeah. I that was interesting too and I, and those conversations were going to start to sprinkle in more during the podcast so people can can hear those different thoughts after talking to witnesses. Here in real time, our confusion and our uh, like, what the hell just happened? And, yeah. and, and, and on the few trips I was, I was on down there, there is a lot of talking it out. You know, there's, there's a lot of comparing thoughts and insights and seeing if the car can come to a consensus. And that was, that was interesting because I think you had a lot of good storytellers in that vehicle looking for the truth. One of the things we'll be doing on these sidebar episodes is answering questions from listeners. So Susan, one of the very first questions we got after episode one was, uh, what is that growling sound we hear during Amanda's interview? Yes. In the audio from our interviews with Amanda Bowling, Brian's sister, um, you may hear at parts like the soft rumbling in the background, or actually kind of the foreground. Um, that would be a very cute kitten that was attacking our cameraman. <laughs> Yeah, so we did travel around with uh, Dan, the cameraman, who shot a lot of footage and eventually will um, start posting video outtakes on our website and on YouTube. So you'll be able to actually see the people you hear in the podcast. So stay tuned for more information about that. There's also been questions about just in general, the family dynamics, you know, where are Brian's parents today? Cause we don't hear from them. Um, Lee's family, Kane's family. Most people in this case are still in Rome. Um, Brian's parents have both passed away. Actually, Brian's father passed away very recently. Um, we weren't able to talk to him or his mother, um, but his uncle, his aunt, his sister, and her now husband, they were boyfriend-girlfriend at the time, um, all talked to us about the case. You'll also hear from Lee's father, Glenn. Also, eventually, we'll hear a little bit from uh, Lee's mom. And, you know, one of the really interesting things I found out um, when we first start researching this case is that Lee's mom and Kane's mom actually live together. They're roommates, um, which I don't know, that, that sort of blew my mind because you would think from the way the story unfolds that, that Lee's family might hold a grudge against Kane, but they don't at all. So we did get another um, question from someone named Jennifer who wrote in saying, it's odd that Brian's family say he would never play Russian roulette, 
but at the same time, he's exhibiting risky behavior, like laying in the street where the cars can't see him. That is something that stood out to me, is that we did hear from a lot of people about risky behaviors that Brian was engaged in, and not just Brian. I mean, these were um, a bunch of teenage boys in a rural area without a great deal of supervision. Um, they were doing some dumb stuff, quite frankly. Um, but yeah, like one of the things you heard about that Brian was doing is that he'd play this game, I guess you'd call it, where he would lay um, on the Rockmart Highway, which runs near his home at night. And this is like a, you know, it's a two lane highway through like a valley. Um, big trucks come through there. There's no lighting at night. You can't see anything there. So, I mean, it's not even playing chicken because the, the other side can't even see that you're playing this game in the first place. So there is a pattern there of risky behavior. Um, but at the same time, his family says that he wasn't careless with guns and that they don't believe he would have been playing with a firearm like this. We did have another question. I think it came in after episode two. Um, and it was a question that was answered in episode three. But I think it's such a big deal that we should talk about it. So someone wrote in asking about the results of the gunshot residue test on Josh's hands. The one forensic test they do that night, the one sort of investigative step they take the night of the shooting is to take Kane slash Josh down to the station to talk to him. And while there, they take swabs of his hands um, where they get you know cotton buds, uh, touch them to the palms of his hands, um, seal them up, send them down to the crime lab in Atlanta where they're tested. And months later, results come back and say there is no, no gunshot residue detected on those samples, which is an indication that Kane had not fired a gun that night. And, and compared to his confession, um, a couple of days after the shooting where he says he did have the gun in his hand when it accidentally went off. And there's, there's no way, so everyone's clear. I mean, there's no way he could have just washed his hands and this gunpowder residue would have been removed. Is that right? I mean, as I understand it, it would have taken days for it to really go away, even if he washed his hand. Well, we'll get more into that later on, um, but probably not. And they do say that at trial, they do testify, the cops testify that they didn't let him wash his hands or they, tried to make sure he didn't do that so if they had tested brian's hands we would have had a lot of answers but they didn't yeah um if they had tested brian's hands that night um we might not be here now um but dallas battle the lead investigator says at trial that by the time he got to the hospital um brian was already in the icu had been cleaned up um and for whatever reason he concludes there's no point in doing a gsr test at that time although it's not clear if he questions whether his hands have been cleaned while there or if there's any reason the test couldn't be performed. And even so, though, they don't say, oh, well, maybe it really was Russian roulette. Instead, they like dig their heels in and say, oh, that's even more proof it was a gang conspiracy. Well, um, yeah, obviously, if if the test is negative on Kane, then that just means he wasn't the one to do it, which means we now have multiple people involved in the murder. Yeah, I, I just... I don't know. I guess the fact that they would not even entertain the idea at that point that it could have been an accident. They now have this other theory that they have to figure out how to prove. We also got a lot of listener questions about the phone. You heard how after the gunshot, Brian's family came into his bedroom and found him lying on the floor with a cordless phone clutched in one of his hands. And listeners wanted to know who he was talking to 
um, if they were still on the other end when the shot was fired, and if so, what they heard. And you'll be hearing a lot more about that on Monday in next week's episode. So that's all for now for this first episode of Sidebar Proof. Um, we're back Monday with episode four. And if you have any questions for future Sidebar episodes, don't forget to send them our way through email, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. On all social media, we're Proof Crime Pod. You can also find me on Twitter at The View from LL2 and on Instagram at SOOSimp. <laughs>